Hello, and welcome to TransAsia and the World. I'm Joy. And I'm Galen. And we're talking today about North Korea. We at TransAsia Pod thought it would be helpful to bring you a special episode, looking back at some scholarly presentations from last September and reflecting on what they continue to show us about the North Korea situation. Eleven months ago, UW-Madison hosted a roundtable discussion about the North Korea crisis. We're really happy to have David Fields with us today in the studio as we follow up on that roundtable panel. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. David Fields is currently Deputy Director of the Center for the Study of the American Constitution at UW-Madison, and he earned his PhD from UW as well with his research into the history of the division of North and South Korea. Did I get that right? That's exactly, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> so, David, we wanted to look back a little bit at what's been happening in the past year or so since this panel, and I thought maybe a good place to start would be last fall, the panel's name was the North Korean crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, do we still have a North Korea crisis? Did Trump solve everything? <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting question. And, and I guess another question was, uh, did we have a North Korea crisis last fall, even mm-hmm. as we were doing that panel? And, and I noted in my introduction to the panels, some would call this a North Korean crisis because some things have changed. Others would look at the situation and say, well, it's pretty much the same as it's always been. So what was unique about what was going on last fall and really for the last four months is the North Koreans were adding some capabilities. They were adding some nuclear capabilities. They were adding capabilities to their uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And this made the situation seem more threatening than it had in the past. But at the end of the day, they still don't have a proven delivery system for their nuclear weapons. So even though they're coming closer to that, I feel like you could look at it from the other side and say, well, we're progressing towards a crisis, but are we actually there? In a technical sense, I mean, it's open for debate. Hmm. I feel like the thing that really changed in the last uh, 12 months was the rhetoric. And we had some rhetoric coming out of Washington that was way different from any rhetoric that had come from any uh, president before. The rhetoric coming out of North Korea was more or less consistent with, with what they've done in the past. They've used very harsh rhetoric for decades against uh, South Korea, against the United States. So that's not surprising. But what we were getting from Washington was what was much different. Now, in retrospect, it looks like this rhetoric was just all to set up for uh, a summit, the Singapore summit that Trump had in in June. So it looks less threatening in retrospect, I think, Mm -hmm. than it did at the time. Because, I mean, rhetoric is rhetoric, but on the other hand, words can lead to actions. And so when you're talking about military options for dealing with North Korea, when you're talking about fire and fury, it all of a sudden becomes possible for many more people to imagine those things. And there's also signaling going on here. You know, when the president speaks, he's not just sending signals to the American people, he's sending signals to people in the Pentagon, people in the State Department, you know, people in Camp Humphreys in South Korea, and all of a sudden, things that are in the back of their mind that they know are possibilities are being brought up. So was there a crisis? Was there not a crisis? I think it really depends on the individual that you're going to ask and how deeply they felt those things. Whatever it was, did it go away? And I think absolutely not. Hmm. I mean, the the rhetoric has been toned down, and so it's been pushed to the background somewhat. But the underlying uh, dynamics of the relationship are still the same. The North Koreans are, uh, well, 
I should I should say they're sending signs that maybe they're interested in some sort of freeze to their nuclear weapons program, but they're not sending any signs. I think that they're serious about denuclearization, and we're not really sending any signs that we're willing to accept North Korea as a nuclear state in the capacity that they are right now. So I think the fundamentals of the relationship have still not changed. There's still plenty of uh, room for conflict going forward, and I think we can expect maybe not resumed rhetoric, but we can expect the continuing conflict between North Korea and not just the United States, North Korea and the international community to continue on for some time. So if there's the question of like technical capacity, North Korea, uh, there's the separate question of like strategic interests, which you say are pretty much haven't changed very much. How important do you think rhetoric is ultimately because you said like that's been the main thing that's flared up and changed over the last 12 months. How consequential is it, do you think? Well, I think it all depends on whether rhetoric spills over into action, you know, and, and in retrospect, it, it looks like this rhetoric was probably a ploy by uh, the Trump administration to look very, very tough on the North Koreans and to try to scare them into coming to the table. And if that was the case, would this rhetoric be effective again in the future? I think if the Trump administration would try similar rhetoric in the future, I think it's hard to imagine it yielding the same results. But this opens up another question, and that is, was it the Trump administration's rhetoric that got North Korea to the table in the first place? This is something that we can't actually answer right now, mm -hmm. but I tend to think, no, it wasn't, because coming to the table to meet an American president is what the North Koreans had wanted all along. They would have accepted yeah. an invitation to that summit regardless of what the United States had done, whether they had been very aggressive or whether they had been conciliatory. Now, on the other hand, last fall and this spring, the Chinese were very vigorous in enforcing sanctions against North Korea, something that they had not been so vigorous about in the past. Was that because of Trump's rhetoric of the Chinese actually being afraid that the United States might do something about North Korea? That's entirely possible. But these are questions that it's going to take a very, very long time, and it's going to take historians decades probably mm -hmm. to try to suss out what exactly was the effect of this rhetoric. Did it bring about any meaningful changes at all, or would the last year have played out more or less the way it did without the rhetoric? And what did you make of the Singapore summit? I mean, it, the, of course, like Trump really hyped it. There was a commemorative coins. <laughs> uh, but afterwards, it's people, I don't know, nobody's talking about it now. It seemed to just kind of fizzle. I mean, what, what was your take on what happened actually in that summit? The, the summit, as a number of people who know it much better than I do have pointed out, the agreement signed at that summit, the negotiations undertaken at that summit, pale in comparison to past meetings, not obviously not between the U.S. president and North Koreans, but between both sides in terms of lack of preparation that went into it and lack of detail that went into it. So in, in that sense, the only thing unprecedented about the summit was the fact that a U.S. sitting president met the North Korean leader. The summit itself produced very, very little that anyone can be proud of. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's, it's fading very quickly into anybody's memories. However, they did do something that was unprecedented and something that the North Koreans, I think, were very excited about. And that is the North Koreans like to portray their struggle as a struggle between them and the United States, when in fact it's a struggle between them and the international community that goes all mm -hmm. the way back to them leaving the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. I mean, this is a struggle against 
the nuclear weapons control regime that's in place that's not just enforced by the United States, but that's enforced by a whole variety of international actors. The North Koreans don't want the conflict to be portrayed in those terms. They want this to be seen as a bilateral conflict between them and the United States, and they want to be dealing with the United States directly. And Donald Trump gave them that opportunity. And now going forward, we're going to be saddled with this for at least the rest of his administration. In the past, it had been the six-party talks, mm -hmm. right? It had been, we're going to gather all the nations who are involved in this. We're going to sit down and we're going to show a united front to the North Koreans. Well, now we're risking the response to North Korea being fragmented. The South mm -hmm. Koreans are off ahead of us in many ways in their relationships with North Korea. The Japanese seem more rattled than they were before. And I think this is a result of Donald Trump, in essence, taking the North Korean debate mm -hmm. and saying, I'm fine having this be a bilateral issue between our two nations. Well, and I've seen a number of news and analysis things looking at the effect on Japan or mm -hmm. Japan's being sidelined in all of these talks. But then also the way that Kim Jong-un has toned down language and rhetoric with South Korea, with the United States, but kind of amped it up with Japan. Louise Young in the panel was talking about sort of Japan's response to North Korea becoming a more nuclear giant. Yeah. So it seems like some of this fracturing of diplomatic talks then has an impact on a country like Japan if they get eliminated from the conversation. It, exactly. And I think this is where we could be living in a very crucial time, actually, in the history of East Asia, where we see an American-led order that was imposed after World War II falling apart. And I don't want to oversell that because it's entirely possible that that's not what's going to happen. But you can see Japan getting very anxious about its own security. You can see them talking about revision to their constitution, building up their own uh, military capabilities. And uh, those familiar with the East Asian context certainly know the effect that that's going to have, not just on North Korea, but on South Korea, on China, on the whole uh, balance of power and, and the stability that has been in that region since the mid-1940s we could be seeing the beginning of the end of this right now. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. There's mm -hmm. still, I think, plenty of opportunity to ensure that that doesn't happen. But that's something that I think would have been unthinkable in, let's say, all the way back in, what, 2016, you know, mm -hmm. 2015. I mean, these are, these are things that are hard to imagine uh, before the last 12 months. Yeah, it is part of a bigger move that Trump's been making to look inward and kind of pull out of our commitments abroad. But can you say over the last 12 months how the rest of East Asia has responded to the summit, the whole escalating of rhetoric between Korea, North Korea and America? So Japan, we talked about like this kind of increased militarization. Are you aware of other countries in the region? Well, I can speak best about South Korea. I was living in South Korea until July of 2017. So I was I was in South Korea for, say, the first half of the, the North Korean, if we're going to call that North Korean nuclear crisis of, of 2017, 2018. So I was there for the first half of it. And it, it's interesting how it's, uh, how it's fractured the country and potentially driven a wedge between South Korea and the United States. So on the one hand, you have... South Korean conservatives 
not only in disarray because President Park Geun-hye was uh, impeached, but also there was a moment where they were really looking to Donald Trump to protect them from what they see as Moon Jae-in, the new liberal president's policy of cozying up too closely to the North. So they were really looking for Donald Trump to kind of play this balancing role. And uh, after Park Geun-hye was impeached in City Hall in Korea, there would be protests every day calling for her uh, reinstatement, calling for her not to be, not to go to prison. And these protests often featured American flags flying with Korean flags. And they also would often feature pictures of Donald Trump as well as Park Geun-hye. Mm-hmm. Now, after the, the June summit, the Singapore summit, all those images of Donald Trump have disappeared. And North Korean conservatives are actually talking about feeling betrayed by Donald Trump and thinking that this was the person who was going to balance out Moon Jae-in, when in fact he seems to be actually cooperating with Moon Jae-in, maybe even making the situation more dangerous than they had thought. Um, Another thing that we're seeing is we're seeing, it's very clear, at least from South Korean liberals, that they have a, a different order of the way they think things should progress. So even under Donald Trump, even though we're making more conciliatory uh, uh, rhetoric towards North Korea, the idea is clearly denuclearization and then some sort of normalization of relations, then an end to the Korean War, where Moon Jae-in and his administration have been quite clear that denuclearization is something that needs to flow out of normalization on the Korean peninsula. And so they're doing two things. They're not putting denuclearization before everything else. And they're also saying that the normalization of relations between North and South Korea is something that we need to do autonomously. We don't need other nations involved in this necessarily. We will decouple the U.S.-North Korean relations from U.S.-South Korea. And so this is where you can also see that fragmentation. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be tremendous, I think, opportunity uh, for conflicts, not military conflicts, but at least political conflicts between South Korea and the United States going forward, either when Donald Trump realizes that the North Koreans are not going to denuclearize and ratchets up the rhetoric again, or when another administration comes in and tries to bring U.S.-North Korean relations back into the international community, trying to say, we're going to go back to the Obama policy, the Bush policy of multilateral deterrence against uh, North Korea. So and then and then about China, it's best probably that I don't speak about China. I really am, I really am a Koreanist. I've spent <laughs> actually I'm an American historian who's just spent a lot of time in Korea. So it, it's best if I limit my comments there. Got it. Now I remember Unsuk Jung's talk on the panel. Yeah. She was talking about the earlier sunshine policy yeah. of cozying up, so to speak, with North Korea uh, for South Korea, and. As I was looking at things unfurl in the past year, it seemed like President Moon was sort of returning to that. Would you say it's a similar thing or is he doing something new? It, it is a similar thing in that it's prioritizing engagement with North Korea over uh, deterrence. I mean, it, it's trying to show the North Koreans that they don't have a reason to fear South Korea. So it's similar in that sense. It's different in the sense that it's hard to do a lot of the things that Kim Dae-jung was doing in the sunshine policy with the current sanctions regime in place against North Korea. So it's hard to really give North Koreans direct non-essential aid. It's harder to have uh, Korean companies outsource some of their production to North Korea. That's harder to do right now. Now, how much longer this sanction regime will last 
whether North Korea, China, or Seoul will find ways of circumventing it. That remains uh, something to be seen. But it is similar, but it's different in what they're actually being able to directly do in North Korea right now. Now, on the other hand, Moon Jae-in has a chance that I think Kim Dae-jung never did, and that's that Korean conservatives are in such disarray right now, and Moon Jae-in is so popular that he really has a chance to push a very strong vision of what he wants to do with North Korea. Now, he kind of lost a test of strength earlier this year when he was attempting a constitutional revision that would have transformed the Korean presidency into something more like the American president. Right now, Korean presidents serve a five-year term. They cannot be re-elected. He tried to change it to a four-year term with the possibility of one re-election. And a lot of observers saw that as a chance to really buy time to cement a new approach toward North Korea, one that would not be easily reversed with the next administration. So that did not get on the ballot for some procedural reasons, and it's unclear as to when it can he can try it again. So he's lost a little bit of a test of strength of his administration, but right now polling data shows that he still has a lot of leeway with the South Korean public to try a new approach towards North mm -hmm. Korea. And what exactly that approach will be, how far ahead he's willing to get out in front of Washington. All this remains to be seen, but certainly he's pursuing, uh, in a philosophical sense, something very similar to the Sunshine Policy, but maybe even something he would be willing to go further on and may have the opportunity to go further on than Kim Dae-jung did. It's also worth noting that he's talking openly about low-level confederation or league with North mm -hmm. Korea, and this is something that drives Korean conservatives, absolutely nuts. Crazy, it's yeah. something that flies under the radar somewhat here in the United States because it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that South Koreans probably fear North Korea less than we do, despite the fact that they're right next door. This is something that's so peculiar about this relationship for Americans to understand. And how you arrive at that is we look back to 1950, and the division of Korea. Koreans are looking back 4,000 years to what they believe is a shared history of this one people on the Korean Peninsula. Of course, it's enormously more complicated than that, but that's the way they see it. So rather than looking at the 50 years of division, they're looking at their thousands of years of what they see as a unified Korean state on that peninsula. And a lot of Koreans really see the division of Korea as the original sin that caused this whole situation that we have now. This was not a decision that Koreans mm -hmm. supported. This was a decision made by outsiders. And there's been sentiment in Korea for a long time, and it goes all the way back to uh, Kim Il-sung and Sigmund Rhee, that Korea must be reunified, that none of these, none of these broader issues can be solved before that. We have, to, we have to somehow find a way to bring ourselves together first. Now, for Korean conservatives, this sounds absolutely crazy. I think to Americans, it sounds absolutely crazy as well. But to Koreans, I feel like when you spend enough time there and when you see their history as a series of victimizations at the hands of outside powers, you can begin to understand how this could make sense to them. And Moon Jae-in seems to be serious about pursuing some kind of low-level confederation with North Korea. Of course, I think to the liberals, this would be something that would be highly symbolic. This would be a kind of trust-building measure. But, I mean, you never know what's actually going to happen right. until you try. And so th there's reason that the conservatives, I think, are very, very wary about this. 
So for Koreans, this kind of reconnection with North Korea is a type of post-colonial getting away from what Europeans and Americans have shaped them to be. And, well, and the Japanese. And the I mean, Japanese. Make sure you're yeah, always including right. the, the right. Japanese in there. I mean, it was, it was, uh, there's a, there's a certain, um, Korean political ideology that sees the division of Korea as an extension of Japanese colonialism by other mm. means. So rather than being independent after uh, Japan is defeated, they get divided between two new colonial powers. And none of them are going to equate the regimes mm. that come after, especially not the Americans with the Japanese. But there's a sense of grievance there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sense that instead of independence, what we got was division. And we need to see that division undone. And the more the military rhetoric is ramped up in the United States, the more South Koreans on the liberal end of the spectrum begin to wonder if what they have to fear most is not actually North Korea, but it's the United States provoking North Korea mm -hmm. into something that could eventually come to harm them. So I, an analogy I like to use is the Jane Eyre analogy. So the South Koreans have a crazy uncle living in the attic mm -hmm. and they don't know exactly what to do about this person, but they're family. And so they feel like a sense of responsibility to it. And they just hope in the end that the house doesn't burn down. Right. <laughs> they, they, they hope that they can keep this situation under control. But <laughs> but there's there's a kinship there that exists between North and South Koreans that is very hard. It, it, it's, it was only till I believe 2011 that the Korean Pledge of Allegiance was changed from the Minjo, the Korean race, to the state of South Korea. And it's a similar thing for their uh, oaths of allegiance for military officers. These things are just changing in the last few years, I think, especially under conservative administrations as they were realizing, we need to make sure that Koreans feel a strong allegiance to the Republic of Korea and not just to the Korean race, because the Korean race includes mm -hmm. North Korea as well. Mm -hmm. So in the panel about a year ago, Andrew Kidd laid out these three possibilities of how things could play out in North Korea. Yeah. Uh, but he was really referring to U.S. diplomacy, saying we could try and make them a normal state, uh, but that was probably impossible. We could have a preventative war, but that was immoral because of all the death it would cause, certainly, in, in South Korea. Or we could just live with it and practice deterrence. But I realized, like, what you're saying from a Korean perspective Actually, them having more nuclear weapons doesn't necessarily change the, the vision for the future in South Korea in the same way it does for like in America, right? Yeah. And, and it doesn't change it because South Korea has always lived under a North Korean threat. Yeah. I mean, maybe North Korean nuclear weapons mean that you would, you would be obliterated more quickly. But, I mean, they've always lived under the threat of the shelling of Seoul, including with a biological weapons that could be just as destructive as mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. And that's a proven delivery system. I mean, there's no doubt that the North Koreans mm -hmm. have the capacity to do that. Yeah. So for the South Koreans, North Korean nuclear weapons are not necessarily a game changer, except that they might provoke the United States into doing something to destable the status quo. But North Korean or South Koreans do not fear North Korean weapons because they know that they're not intended for them, right? All of these delivery systems are not intended to deliver yeah. a nuclear weapon 60 kilometers across the border. They're intended mm -hmm. to reach Japan. They're intended to reach Guam. They're intended to reach the United States. So it, it, there's a lot of South Koreans that will say, you know, this is 
this is kind of a different issue, the nuclear weapons issue. We have our own threats to deal with, but they don't change whether North Korea has nuclear weapons or not. Yeah. So where do you see the possible futures leading? I think Professor Kidd is absolutely right at, at this moment that deterrence is the only option. And it's been the only policy that we've pursued since 1992, since you know North Korea left the NPT. Deterrence, although it's been multilateral deterrence, has been what every administration has attempted. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other possibilities. There is the military option. And the Trump administration has been very forthright about looking into military options. But I can guarantee that the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, we know they have all looked at military options and they've all come to the same conclusion that Professor Kidd came to, that these would be immoral. But that doesn't mean that we'll always see it that way. Yeah. That doesn't mean at some point the calculation won't change either because of the way we conceive of the situation or because it's possible to imagine right now a future in which there are fewer or no U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula. Now, this is not very probable, but it's something that we can I can actually imagine for the first time. I can imagine a set of scenarios in which that might happen. And that would change the calculus completely. You could also imagine a situation in which something changes between North and South Korea, say a low level confederation, which would force the United States to rethink its entire relationship with South Korea and could affect what military options they think are moral now. Or there could be some sorts of developments in, in uh, military technology that would make them think uh, either, A, we can neutralize a North Korean artillery threat to Seoul. There's some way that we can have both a strike on North Korea and save the city of Seoul. Or there's some other technology out there that we can harm uh, North Koreans' nuclear weapons uh, without provoking some sort of backlash. Now, I have no idea what those would be, but I guarantee there's people... There's probably hundreds of people right now sitting in windowless offices trying to think, <laughs> how can we how can we neutralize North Korean nuclear weapons without placing you know, 20 million Koreans at risk and without place, placing potentially millions of Americans at risk if they can come up with a proven delivery system to reach the United States? So, yeah, right now, I think there is no um, moral, there's no responsible military option, but that doesn't mean there never will be. And then as far as uh, making North Korea a normal country, uh, I think there's a, there's a subset of options kind of related to that in, in which we, we just don't care about the Korean Peninsula anymore. Mm -hmm. And this is another set of options where, um, where we decide that our ongoing relationship with South Korea as it's existed since 1950 is not in our interest anymore. And we withdraw from the region. And that would open up a whole new set of possibilities. Both could go in a more combative direction, or it could be that the North Koreans then really focus on South Korea for their conflict and try as best they can to mollify the international community as they work to uh, secure control over the entire Korean Peninsula. I think one interesting way to read what Kim Jong-un has been doing, really even since the late Obama administration, is recognizing that Americans are beginning to rethink their international commitments. And now would be a really good time to force the American people to have a conversation about what Korea is worth to them. Because right now, if you're North Korean, you have to think that this debate would go on terms favorable to them, favorable mm -hmm. towards the withdrawal 
of Americans, not just from Korea, but from East Asia. I mean, how many, how many Americans on the street know that we have 28,000 troops in South Korea? Mm -hmm. Actually, probably a lot now do. But in 2016, how many know that? Mm -hmm. How many of them could explain why those troops were there? How many of them would be willing to sacrifice to keep those troops there? How many of them would be willing to send their sons and daughters to fight in a new Pacific War to guarantee this arrangement, this political arrangement that has lasted since 1945? I think the odds are greater right now than at any point since 1945, with maybe the exception of the Vietnam War, that people would say, you know what, I think it's, I think we should at least be interested in drawing back. These are not likely scenarios at all. I think in the, the immediate to mid future, deterrence will continue to be the preferred policy. But I think you go far enough and you see deterrence is not going to last forever. Mm -hmm. and, and eventually things are going to go in a different direction. And I think we can see the beginnings of a possible switch right now. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the panel was that you had two political science people and then uh, Dr. Young is a historian. And historians and political scientists take their analysis from different types of study and from different uh, sources. I know a lot of your knowledge and expertise comes from dissertation work you mm -hmm. did. And I think you have a book coming out, I right? do have a book coming out. Yes, yes. Uh Foreign Friends, Sigmund Rhee, American Exceptionalism, and the Division of Korea. So it'll be out in March of 2019. And uh, really what the project is, is when I started doing U.S.-Korean relations, a question that recurred to me was, why was Korea divided in the first place? And you hear answers of Korea was necessary to the defense of Japan. The United States wanted a foothold in East Asia. But as I got into the documents, I got the, I, I began realizing that None of these were, I didn't see any of that in the documents. There are people who would argue later in the mid-1950s that we need to stay in Korea to protect the Japanese, you know, to protect it from the Soviets, to protect it from the encroachments of communism. No one was making that argument in August of 1945. Mm -hmm. And certainly no one was making the argument that we want troops on the mainland of Asia. In fact, the military was saying just the opposite. And so I set out on this project to try to understand how Korea got divided in the first place. Why did American policymakers think mm -hmm. it was worthwhile to suggest this division? And so the book is about how uh, Sigmund Rhee, first president of Korea, longtime exile in the United States, spent 40 years doing grassroots organizing, raising awareness about Korea in front of American audiences, and slowly gained momentum. He had the, uh, the incredible luck to write a book called Japan Inside Out. I believe it came out in August of 1941, saying essentially the Japanese are going to attack you sooner or later if you don't stand up to them. When, of course, the Japanese attacked just a few months later, he's happy to play the spurned prophet mm -hmm. all over the United States and saying, you didn't listen to us Koreans, you let this injustice go, and now it's come back to you. Now it's time for you to make things right with the Korean people. And he made allies in Congress who in June and July of 1945 were warning the State Department. And remember, this is the State Department who already people are suspecting is full of communists, who they're suspecting have badly, badly bungled our foreign relations during the war, including our foreign relations with Japan. And he's saying the State Department is about to sell Korea out to the Soviet Union. That FDR made a secret deal at Yalta selling out Korea. And this was front page news in the New York Times and the Chicago Times and the LA Times. And nobody knew that he wasn't telling the truth. 
All right. And so he's putting a lot of pressure on his congressmen and they're putting pressure on the State Department. You have to do something for Korea. And this is part of the context of the division of Korea that we've completely forgotten, that there was a number of Americans deeply interested in Korea for religious reasons. Korea has one of the largest Christian revivals in the 20th century in 1905. Uh, Christianity explodes in Korea at that point. It's later suppressed by the Japanese, but there's a number of Americans who gain this connection with Korea as just this phenomenal mission field could be the first Christian nation of Asia who felt that the United States had done a real disservice not only to Korea, but to their own reputation by not confronting the Japanese over Korea. And these people were saying, we're not doing that again. We're not going to sell Korea down the river to the Soviet Union the way we did to Japan. So this is this is the whole story. My book goes from 1905 to 1945. And it's, it's trying to tell the long story of how Korea was divided, that mm -hmm. it's true that there were just two colonels who were given this assignment to divide Korea. And they had about 10 minutes notice and they looked at a map and said, okay, that's the line. But why were they given those instructions in the first place? Mm -hmm. That's what this book is trying to explain. And it's, it's very germane to uh, the current conflict on the peninsula because it shows just how much, how deep this Korean sense of victimization goes, mm -hmm. right? And Sigmund Rhee traces his grievance to the United States all the way back to 1905 and to the Taft-Ketsura Memorandum in which he believed the United States sold Korea out to Japan. So there's this long history of Korean victimization, not just at the hands of the Japanese, but also at the hands of the Americans. David, thank you so much for talking with us today about North Korea, what is going on right now, about the panel, and about your work as well. Um, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm always happy to discuss. Check out our website, transasiapod.history.wisc.edu, or you can find us on Twitter at transasiapod. In our next series of episodes, we will interview scholars whose work deals with a different topic, this time gender. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall.